millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod comes to you from Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. If you're a policymaker or you want to get into the world of policymaking, I highly recommend you check out our wide range of short courses and degree programs, which you can find at crawford.anu.edu.au. Now, today we've got a very special episode of Policy Forum Pod for you. Coming up later, we're going to be hearing from our regular presenter, Sharon Bessel, who is in London at the moment. Sharon was this week named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence 2019 list. So we'll hear about what that means and find out what she's up to in London. First, though, we're going to take a look at the rapidly changing world of work. Around the world, people's work and workplaces are being transformed by the rise of automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence. That transformation brings significant challenges to policymakers and to the people who see their own lives and livelihoods transformed, often in negative ways. So how can we make sure this dramatic transformation that is already underway actually benefits humankind. Earlier this week, Yule Ahrens put these questions to Professor Richard Baldwin. Richard is a professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, and he's the editor-in-chief of the economic portal voxeu.org. He's also the author of the book The Globotics Upheaval, Robotics, Globalization, and the Future of Work. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, Richard Baldwin. It's a great pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Let's dive right in. Richard, this Tuesday you discussed your new book, uh, The Globotics Upheaval, Globalization, Robotics and the Future of Work. When we talk about globotics upheaval, what do we actually mean by that? Well, globotics is an ugly but hopefully memorable word that smashes together globalization and robotics with the hope that people remember that digital technology is affecting both globalization and robotics. And what I'm reacting against is the standard narrative of asking, was it automation or was it globalization? And when I say going forward, it's both at the same time. And the second word, upheaval, is because I think there's a very good chance, one that's seriously underestimated, that the white-collar and professional workers who are affected by this will join with the blue-collar workers who were affected with the last one and create some sort of upheaval. 
And I'm not predicting that will have to happen, but I think it has a high enough probability that we have to take it more seriously than governments do now. Yeah, you mentioned there's a lot of challenges surrounding this. So in your book, you also argue that artificial intelligence and robotics are changing our lives at a very inhumane speed and that threatens to overwhelm the, our capacity to adapt. That sounds pretty threatening. What exactly are these the biggest challenges and threats humanity is facing from this development? Well, so uh, let me just stick with the world of work. I mean, humanity, I know some people with science fiction movies, we get uh, embedded AI in our heads and things like that. Uh, it can get just, very broad. <laughs> it can get very broad. Let's just talk about work. Okay? Yes. So the fundamental change is that from around 1916, computers gained a whole range of cognitive capacities that they didn't have before. And it's come relatively subtly, so not everybody's noticed it, although everybody knows it. Computers can see and recognize things. They can read emails. They can produce output, visual output, written output. They can recognize handwriting. And these skills are useful in some office jobs. And now that computers can do them, a whole set of service sector tasks, which used to require humans, can now be automated. So many tasks in the service sector will now be automated when they couldn't have before. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any human jobs before, but the tasks that can be done by artificial intelligence will be done by artificial intelligence. And on the other hand, the globalization side, what I call telemigration, or it's really just international freelancing. People who earn one-tenth or one-twentieth of the salaries they do in Australia will be keen to participate in the offices in Australia or Europe or wherever uh, for much less remotely. And that's why I call it telemigration. It's as if they're here working with us, but they're not actually here. Uh, that will su substitute for a whole other series of tasks. So in, in some ways, I don't think many, and it's not just me, but the, the uh, people who've done lots of research on this, not many occupations will be replaced, but almost every occupation will be changed by automation and globalization. So our jobs will be different. That's, to me, the big disruption and will make people very upset. It also sounds like there will be changes around the legal aspects and the job policy. I mean, if you start a job and you work, as you said, from somewhere else, what salary do you get paid? And is that and how do you ensure that the work conditions are fair? Yeah, no, it's that. I think the labor standard challenges are huge, and it's it's wrapped up a bit, lot with the gig economy. So the digital digital technology is also responsible for the dissolution of standard job contracts, which is goes faster in different places. But in the U.S., it's just huge. And the U.K., it's huge. People on zero-time contracts. So it's the same technology that's dissolved those jobs. And many of our governments don't know how to deal with it because so much of our social policy and the way we deal with things are based on cap what I call job-based capitalism. So are the pensions portable? Uh, who uh, ensures that the labor standards are enforced? Who ensures that it's not a 16-year-old girl chained to a chair in unsanitary conditions in outer Mongolia that's actually doing the work? So we, we do need more governance on that sort of thing to, to ensure. Taxation is another problem. You know, where do these people pay the taxes? So yeah, you're, you're right. I agree with it. It's a, it's a big legal challenge as well. So already challenges that we're facing nowadays with companies taking um – like being in countries where they have to pay less taxes. So something that in that sense is not new, but will be on, on a much, much bigger scale. And, and also the, a lot of the enforcement stuff on corporate tax evasion, IP, is based on the fact that these are giant corporations that have a legal entity somewhere. These are millions of people registered on Freelancer or Upwork, 
how you're going to find them, how you're going to enforce it. I mean, there are ways, but we we got to think about it. Next to all of these challenges, of course, there are benefits. And you've mentioned this already. People will be much more flexible in choosing their place to work. What are some of the other benefits that could be harnessed from this? So once the transition gets through, it's a transitional issue because this digital technology is displacing jobs, human engineering is creating jobs, and there's a mismatch of the speed. But once we get past it, as we did when we moved from the farms to the factories, from the factories to the offices, once we get through this, basically it's taking the robot out of human jobs. The the dullest stuff will be gone. And what's left is human interactions. Those what The jobs that do exist will require you to do lots of human things and require you to actually be in the same room. So the future world of work will be dominated by jobs which are very human and very local. And that, I think, is a good future because, of course, we'll be all more productive, therefore we'll be richer, more generous. So if we get past this transition, I think the world of work is actually a good place. It actually sounds quite exciting and something to look forward to as innovation and change are really facts of life. How can policymakers ensure that we can actually reap those benefits? Okay, so when this book is really not a policy book about policy reactions. It's about alerting people to what's coming. But I do have a discussion of that. So the first thing is really there's nothing new here. People will have to change jobs, but potentially faster. But on the other side, since they're service sector workers, not manufacturing or factory workers, that's going to be easier because service sector workers are more flexible. Most of them live in cities where there are actually jobs. So that's easier. But whatever governments do to help people change jobs, they need to do more of it and probably uh, faster. That's the main thing. Transition policy, really. It will probably get pushback, shelterism, I call it in the book, where particular professions try and use regulations to slow down the adoption of uh, automation and globalization, like the taxi drivers resist Uber. But that you'll see that in professions all over the world, wherever there is regulation. But lots and lots of service sector jobs, most office jobs are completely unregulated. My job, for instance, you do not need a degree to do what I do. If if I if I pass the uh, the exam, if I have enough research, and it used to happen a lot in the UK, people without PhDs became professors, and there is no certification that you're an economist. So that that's completely unregulated. Anybody can do do the job. In fact, so quite naturally, there are a few anxieties about it. But if we think about an ideal scenario in the future where we have found ways to make that transition in a productive way. In a few words, what would you say that could look like? Well, so that's a, I, I think that the economy, a lot of companies will look like the startups like Snapchat and WhatsApp, where there's relatively small group of people, interdisciplinary teams, using AI and using remote intelligence to do lots of stuff. And and that's what the the job the corporations will be more amorphous, changing all the time. I think the teams will people will organize in teams. It's not clear that the standard work contract will will survive this whole thing. So it'll be a little bit more like we're all freelancers or small companies that that come together. Uh, but I do think you know the fact that it has to be local and it has to be human will tend to lead to teams that that persist. And and so that's the kind of world of work I see. But, you know, I'm an optimist, so it's possible we won't get there. Well, it's a very optimistic note to end on. Thank you very much, Richard, for coming by today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
Thanks so much again to Richard for taking the time to talk to us. It's certainly a fascinating issue and one that's going to impact so many of our lives going into the future. Listeners, what did you make of it? We are really keen to get your thoughts and the best way to do that is to reach us on our Facebook group. You can join the podcast gang there. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Uh, You can also reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or go old school, shoot us an email where we're podcast at policyforum.net. We always love hearing from you. Also, if you want to learn more about the impact of globalization, you might want to check out Crawford School's Master of Public Policy with a specialization in international policy. Just go to crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study to find out more. We're recording this on a Thursday, and today we heard that our presenter and the Editor-in-Chief of Policy Forum, Professor Quentin Grafton, had won a highly prestigious Australian Laureate Fellowship. Quentin's five-year project will aim to improve our understanding of the relationship that Indigenous Australians have with water. It is a fantastic achievement to win a Laureate, so huge congratulations from all of us here to you, Quentin. But that wasn't the only big bit of news this week. Earlier in the week, our brilliant pod presenter, Sharon Bessel, was named as one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence for 2019. We are tremendously excited for her and didn't want to miss the opportunity to congratulate her and have a bit of a chat about what this accolade means to her. Now, Sharon is currently in London attending the Human Development and Capability Association Conference and I had a quick call with her yesterday. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. So we've got Sharon Bessel on the line to talk about the fact that that this week she was named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence 2019. Sharon, hello and congratulations to you. Hi, Martin. It's great to talk to you. Greetings from sunny London. Is it sunny? Is it? Is it? Uh, are we missing the uh, the very short English summer? It is actually beautiful weather here. Low twenties, beautiful warm breeze. A little bit of craziness going on around Brexit, which I think would be acting as a trigger for you. But it's a fascinating time to be here. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But first, I wanted to congratulate you on being in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence 2019 list. That must be very exciting for you. Oh, thanks, Martin. Look, it is really exciting. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, to be honest. I must say I'm I'm mostly feeling humbled. I look at the list of incredible women um, that have been named in the Australian Financial Review and to be um, in that company is a rather incredible thing. So I'm, I'm feeling a bit overawed. Um, but like all of these things, it's obviously a team effort. And I am so fortunate to have such an incredible group of colleagues to work with, um, including you and our fabulous podcast team. Uh, so nice of you to say. But when and how did you find out about the award? Uh, so there was a nomination process um, and the wonderful ANU Gender Institute is always so supportive in, in nominating people for, for these kinds of things. Um, but I received an email on uh, Monday saying that I was going to be in the list and then it was announced in the, the um, Australian Financial Review on Tuesday. And then I have got a, a lot of activity around social media. <laughs> and how did it make you feel when you found out that you'd actually won it? Um, 
Um, I, I guess it's exactly as I said. I mean, it's it's a very exciting thing. It's an amazing thing. Um, but I must say, I looked through the the list of of, of others who had been who had been named, and I really just felt humbled. I think is is the word. It's just an incredible list of people, and it's an amazing thing to see what people are doing that you don't normally hear about. So I think these kinds of lists are really important in just putting a spotlight onto the work that some people do. And a lot of the people on that list are, are working away quietly at incredibly things that incredibly good things that make the society we live in a better place and we don't always hear about them. So, um, yeah, it was a, a real mix of, of feelings that I felt, but it was really feeling very humbled, I think. And there's been an incredible show of support and congratulations on social media for you for being in that list. How has that kind of response on social media made you feel? Oh, look, that's been really lovely. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I know there's uh, always a lot of debate about social media and sometimes the commentary on social media can be quite toxic. Um, This is a case where I have just felt... um, well, just incredibly supported. And the the comments that people have made on social media have just been lovely. So it's been so nice. And I have to say, Martin, one of the nicest things, uh, well, there are many nice things, but one of the nicest things is receiving um, messages um, via social media, but by email as well, from my former students who are now scattered all over the world. Um, and some really lovely comments from them, but also this being an opportunity to reconnect with people that I taught maybe five, in some cases, 10 years ago, um, and to hear the incredible things that they're doing. So the social media activity has been really fantastic around this. Well, I think it's fantastic that you won the award, and I'm sure um, all of our listeners will be really pleased that you won the award. So huge congratulations to you. Um, You're, as you said, you're in London this week, and you're taking part in the Human Development and Capability Association Conference. What have you been up to? What have you been talking about there? This is a really fascinating conference. So some of our listeners will know about the human development approach and about the capability approach. Um, The capability approach and all of the work that goes around this was pioneered by Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum primarily um, as a way of thinking about development and assessing development in terms that move beyond a purely economic focus and that move beyond GDP. Amartya Sen is uh, an economist, Martha Nussbaum, a philosopher, and their thinking has really driven a new approach to, to thinking about um, the world that we live in and the way in which we assess people's well-being. One of the really interesting things about the conference this year has been the very strong focus on uh, what we sometimes hear called planetary health, um, on the size of the ecological footprint, and debates around how we can balance human development into the future 
with protecting the planet and being at one with nature, there was an amazing keynote speech from Vandana Shiva, who some people um, will will be familiar with. She has worked for decades in India, particularly with poor farmers trying to protect um, food security, agricultural security, and particularly seeds from genetic modification. So she had some really interesting things to say, and she made this wonderful comment where she said, you know, going forward we must learn to live at peace with the earth and to stop warring with the earth. And so this really strong focus on sustainability sustainability, and the cost to the environment um, of the way in which human development has taken place to date. So this conference is very much around rethinking what human development means going forward. It's, it's fascinating. That sounds uh, fascinating indeed. It sounds like a very interesting keynote, but she, she sounds like she would be a really good podcast guest. Maybe you could uh, put in a good word for us while you're there. Oh, Martin, you should have me on commission, really. Um, there are a number of people here who would be fantastic podcast guests. So I have got a queue of people that I have been talking to. I'm also going to give a shout out to the fact that these conferences are held every year and they're normally held um, in Europe. They did come as far as Jakarta one year, and I think there was a conference in Africa, in South Africa a few years ago. But in 2020, the conference will be in New Zealand. Um, and, of course, a lot of people have been saying, oh, that's too far to come. Um, so I'm encouraging people to, to make their way to New Zealand. It's going to be a great conference next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you presumably have also been talking about the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, which you uh, lead here at ANU. How have those uh, conversations gone? It's It's been great. There's been a lot of interest in what we're doing. So I've been presenting on um, two things while I've been here. One is um, on the work that we're doing um, around childhood poverty in Indonesia. So that's an ARC discovery project that is paralleling um, the IDM and looking at the way in which we can better assess child poverty from um, a child standpoint. So I presented on that work yesterday and there was real interest in that. And one of the, the absolutely unique features um, of the IDM is that it's grounded in participatory research and responds to the experiences, views and priorities of women and men with experience of living in poverty. Uh, the IDM is the only measure that has started from that place and um, of course, the IDM is not a measure of child poverty. So it's really important that we develop um, a way of assessing poverty that puts children at the centre. And at the moment, our research is, is um, I think, if not alone, one of the very few research projects doing that. So there was a lot of interest in that work. Today, um, three of my wonderful colleagues, um, Mandy Yap, Trung Pham and Janet Hunt, will be presenting on the IDM and I'm chairing that session um, and we're really looking forward to that. We've had a lot of informal conversations and there's a lot of interest in the IDM. Again, there are a number of measures of uh, multidimensional poverty and of gender equality that are being developed at the moment. And that's wonderful because we've got this real um, buzz of research around these important issues. But I, I genuinely believe that the IDM offers value that other measures don't. Um, so it's exciting to talk to people and it's exciting to talk to people about the ways in which the work that we're doing can really help to address poverty. Um, 
you know, I don't think any of us work on poverty research. I don't think any of us would want to measure poverty for the sake of it. What we want to do is reduce and ultimately end poverty. Um, We want to make the lives of women, men and children who are living in poverty better. And I think the IDN is a tool to help us do that. So being able to talk to other people who are really committed to that end goal here has been very exciting. Now, the IDM, of course, is one of the reasons why you won the Australian Financial Review's uh, uh, entry into the 100 Women of Influence list. Uh, but now you said that you're in London at the moment. And of course, any conversation with me, all roads invariably lead towards Brexit. So I'm going to have to ask you your views. You're there at a time when uh, there's all manner of craziness in the UK Parliament. Parliament rebelled against the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. They've ordered him to go and seek a, uh, uh, an extension to um, from the European Union. What's your take on all of this? Have you has has any of it kind of touched you whilst you've been in London? What's the atmosphere like there? Well, in some ways, we're in a, a little bit of a bubble because we're you know we're we're in the conference and we're all very focused on what we're doing. So, over the last couple of days, I feel as though I've lost touch with some of those debates. Although, when you walk around London, you know on the end, on the the weekend, um, people were telling me that there were lots of protests. You know, people out on the streets. Um, and people out on the streets arguing to leave and to stay, people supporting Johnson, people not supporting Johnson. So you can you can see and you can feel the engagement of people with this issue. And of course, you know, this really matters for the future of the country. What was really interesting, though, is I was in Norway um, up until Sunday night and there was so much coverage of this in Norway. Um, of course, on BBC World, it was covered wall to wall. But this is, it's, you can feel, um, I guess, the tensions here in London, but it's being reported really widely right across the EU. Um, this is such a, a major issue, and it's just really hard to see how this is going to end in a way um, that produces a smooth transition. Um, I was talking to the, the taxi driver on the way in from the airport as you always do, and as taxi drivers always are. He was incredibly well informed. Um, and he runs a, a small business on the side and was saying that the the drop in the pound and the state of the economy has meant that his income has fallen by about 40% over the last year. And he didn't have a very strong view on whether to stay or leave, but he was saying this has to be resolved because we can't go on and the uncertainty is causing damage. And I suspect a lot of people are feeling that way. So it's um, it's an interesting but worrying time. Uh, talking to, to, to some people, you know, there is a sense among some that they really want to leave. But I think, you know, my, my sense is there's a, an overwhelming anxiety too about what that will mean. I think people just want this resolved. I mean, it could go absolutely any way at this stage. Who knows, by this time next week, you might be uh, Prime Minister in the UK. Have you been tapped on the shoulder yet? Or can we uh, expect you back in the podcast studio anytime soon? I think I'll be coming immediately back to the, the to the podcast room. I'm not sure that England is ready for an Antipodean. <laughs> but who knows? Who will be Prime Minister of Great Britain next week? But, you know, this is, this is an amazing country. Um, I hope this is sorted out for people very soon because you you feel the anxiety. And I think one of the things we've talked about 
um, a lot on the podcast is the need for political leadership in what appears to be a vacuum of leadership in so many contexts. One of the things that we've been talking about at this conference is the critical need to rebuild trust in societies where trust has been fundamentally eroded. And I think we're seeing that in it we're seeing that here at the moment. You know, there is no sense of political leadership that is not acting in its own self-interest. There is no sense of political leadership that is trying to lead the country to a better place for the country. There is no sense of trust in political leaders. And I think that's worrying. Um, but that's something that's occurring in so many countries. And that's the challenge that we face today. Well, that's an issue that we will certainly be picking up on more in podcasts to come, I suspect. But to circle back, I want to again just congratulate you, Sharon, once again on uh, being named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence list for 2019. Uh, We can think of no uh, woman that we know who is more influential than you and more deserving of being in that list. So it's terrific. And from all of us here, uh, congratulations. We are absolutely delighted for you. Martin, thanks so much. And I really do want to say that any um, recognition of this kind can only occur if, if people are part of really amazing collaborations. And I'm fortunate to be part of many incredible collaborations. You know, the IDM itself is a product of a wonderful partnership with incredible support from the Australian government through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. We've been partnering with the International Women's Development Agency for a number of years now. The program began as a collaboration with a range of universities and civil society organisations. We've got a great team and all the work I do is a product of incredible teams. So I really want to thank all of my colleagues Um, and thank you. I think the the work that we do on, on Policy Forum really matters. So it's a privilege to be part of that. Uh, It's a privilege for us to have you part of it as well. So we will look forward to having you in the podcast booth again soon, Sharon. But thank you very much for checking in with us from London. Looking forward to being back and um, looking forward to my last couple of days in London. (laughs) Thanks, Martin. Welcome back and thanks so much again, Richard and Sharon, for taking the time to talk to us. So listeners, what did you think of our two discussions today? We're really keen and interested to get your thoughts. Uh, please do keep sending them in the usual ways. You can reach us on Twitter, we're at Apps Policy Forum. Uh, you can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or the very best way, jump on the Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. We'll be really keen to hear what you've got to say. Now, at the end of each podcast, we uh, go over some of your questions and some of your comments and some of the things that have been happening on the Facebook group. Uh, And last week, we put out a podcast called Language Barriers, which featured Angela Scarino, Grazia Scottolaro, and Luke Courtois. And in that episode, we look at Australian education language policy and asked whether we're doing enough to give young people the language skills they need. It was a really interesting podcast. And there was a good conversation about it on our Facebook group. There's a comment from Gillian Verhart, who left us a comment about language barriers between British, US and Australian people. So thanks for that, Gillian. And also huge thanks to Anya Wardle, who uh, shared an article with us about a school in Australia where most children can speak Hindi. It was a really interesting read. So check out and join in the conversation at Policy Forum Pod 
on Facebook. Now, as our regular listeners will know, we are giving away Policy Forum Pod mugs to anyone who suggests a topic for the pod that we later turn into an episode or has at least five comments or questions uh, from the Facebook podcast group read out or asked on the podcast. And we've actually given out quite a few of these mugs now. Uh, And from what we see, they are in the best hands. There's a bunch of great photos coming in uh, from people who own the mugs, sharing photos of where their mugs are, Uh, all around Australia. It's fantastic to see these photos coming in and uh, the mugs being used in some very glamorous looking locations. So please do keep them coming in. We love seeing where they end up. Now, also on the Facebook page, we're really keen to find out what other podcasts you are listening to uh, besides Policy Forum Pod, Democracy Sausage and the National Security Podcast, obviously. And big thanks to Elias Alage for a few really good suggestions of other great pods. You can join in that conversation and let us know what you're listening to on the Facebook group. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Now that brings us to the end for this week. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to Policy Forum Pod. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And huge thanks to everyone who has left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate those. This episode has been produced by me, Martin Pierce, with writing and post-production by Yulia Ahrens and extra writing by Patrick Cooney. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod, but until then, from me, cheerio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.